This is Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Sarah Holtz. We present a three-part program about anxiety, grief, and climate change. Climate change first entered the general public's vocabulary on a conceptual level, but as we continue to witness record-breaking wildfires and storms, as well as global food shortages, it looms much larger for people who experience the fallout in their daily lives. This collective feeling has taken on various labels from eco-anxiety to climate grief. On this episode of Peace Talks Radio, correspondent Sarah Holtz brings us three perspectives on climate anxiety from a scholar, a journalist, and an artist. We begin the program with Francis Roberts Gregory, an environmental sociologist who investigates the intersections between sustainability and social justice. Through a black feminist lens, Francis focuses on frontline communities who are disproportionately impacted by climate change. She's working to increase the representation in STEM education. That's science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. First, Francis explains how she found her academic path. I've always been interested in society and cultures. I think my mom raised me to really appreciate difference and diversity and also travel. And so when you travel, you meet people who are similar to you, different than you. So I think that's really where it starts. And then as an undergraduate student at Spelman College, I uh, majored in sociology and anthropology and also environmental science for a while. It just made sense for me to bring my love for the environment and sustainability in conversation with women's activism in relation to uh, the climate crisis. I also know that you identify as an eco-womanist. What's an eco-womanist? So an eco-womanist, as defined by Dr. Melanie Harris, uh, who really came up with the term, is a feminist environmentalist, a woman of color who connects the personal to the political and political to the personal. And really this um, is based off of the work of the great Alice Walker. She coined the term womanism, which is women of color's version of feminism, because many women of color had an issue with how white middle-class women had co-opted the feminist movement. So they said, we need our own term that relates to our own experiences. But a womanist is a feminist of color. So an eco-womanist is a feminist of color who is, uh, believes that women of color have unique solutions for environmental degradation and addressing the climate crisis. Also who um, are really connected to ancestors and future generations and understanding what a woman of color environmental ethic looks like. So it's really theory and action and it's based in praxis. For listeners who might be unfamiliar with some of these topics, I'm wondering if you could give us your definition of environmental racism. I don't like to reinvent the wheel, so I really draw inspiration from environmental justice greats like Benjamin Chavis, Dr. Beverly Wright. So they really define environmental racism as any inequitable distributions of environmental harms and benefits also the lack of diversity in environmental organizations, so we can talk about environmental grant makers, and the unequal enforcement of environmental policies. And we see that when we talk about the Environmental Protection Agency, um, whose communities are funded for Superfund cleanups, whose communities are uh, disregarded and forgotten or seen as sacrifice zones. 
So my definition really draws inspiration from the definitions of the environmental justice greats. And I know that you've done some research about the use of green space in southwest Atlanta. Could you tell us a little bit about those findings? Yeah, so that was a great project. So when I graduated from Spelman um, in 2013, I applied to an REU. REU is a research experience for undergraduates. So the summer between starting my PhD and graduating with my undergraduate degree, I did this internship at Georgia State University. And so Dr. Timothy Hawthorne, uh, he is a community geographer, and he really introduced me to this idea of research for the benefit of community empowerment and research to address historical inequalities that manifest themselves in geographic spaces. And so this project was really about understanding why local residents were underutilizing uh, Lionel Hampton Beecher Hills Nature Preserve in Southwest Atlanta. And we actually collaborated with the West Atlanta Watershed Alliance, which is a organization um, run by a woman of color, Dr. Nataki Osborne-Jelks, who's also at Spelman College, which focuses on stormwater management in underserved communities of color. Our, so our entire research project was born out of the needs of this community-based organization. And our results indicated that when we think of green space accessibility, most people think about it in terms of quantitative measures such as connectivity, how many park benches are there, how, how many trees, you know, it's very quantitative, but people often forget about the emotional aspect. So when we interviewed residents around the park, we realized that really the park is surrounded by, uh, if I remember correctly, five distinct neighborhoods that differ in terms of social economic status which was missed by previous researchers who said, oh, this is, these, this is just a Black neighborhood. But Black people are not a monolith. And so oftentimes the folk who lived in the more wealthy community did not utilize the park space or the nature preserve because they didn't want to interact with residents, lower income residents. Oftentimes uh, renters were stigmatized, people who use Section 8 vouchers. And there's a long history around housing injustice in Atlanta. And so oftentimes when people talk about green space accessibility, they leave out this entire historical, emotional, social, cultural context. And so our research said, hey, if you want to increase usage of the park, you actually have to build relationships between the neighbors. And so we actually had some walkthroughs where we actually, a lot of the elderly women, we walked with them into the park. We uh, dispelled a lot of myths and fears about the park. You have to also understand that a lot of times people will dump tires in the park, which is an environmental justice issue. People will leave dogs that they don't want to take care of anymore in the park. So people were afraid of dogs. Also, a lot of elderly residents, they had a lot of bad memories associated with the history of um, lynching and Jim Crow, because a lot of times when African-Americans think about the outdoors, they think about, well, we were lynched in the woods. The woods don't necessarily have a positive connotation. That's not for all people of African descent in the United States, but for some people. Also, we dealt with miscommunication. Uh, I think that was the most important research finding. There were so many green space managers in the space that were causing all types of confusion and none of them were reaching out to the local residents. And for elderly women, you can't say like, oh, we posted 
you know, a, a, an announcement on the internet. Some of these folks, because of the digital divide, do not even have access to the internet or uh, usually get their mail or their uh, notices via newspapers or through their churches. But no one from the city was going to the neighborhood planning unit meetings. No one was going to the churches. So it's like, how are we engaging people during this digital age? Wow. And I'm so curious, when you took some of those elderly residents through the park, what were their reactions to that experience? You know, it was really transformative. There were folk who were really adamantly against the park. They were saying, I don't want to go in there. But then once we brought them in there or we walked with them in the park, they were like, oh, this is nice. Oh, I really like this. And so it really was, it was about fear. There was just a lot of fear. And also you have to understand this park did not, there was no, there wasn't a map of the park before we created a map of the park. So like literally no one wanted to go in the park if they didn't know where it ended, where it began and ended or how many entrances there were. So like little things, but when we have under investment in our parks and green spaces and public spaces, you know, people are like less likely to use them and think that they're really just centers of crime and un- and unwanted behavior. But once we brought them in the park, they were like, I'm going to come here every day. I'm going to bring my friend. I'm going to exercise here. So the map really facilitated that. And I think that's why mixed methods, interdisciplinary research is so important because we brought like these different perspectives and we address the issue holistically, which is what we really need to do to address all of these wicked environmental problems from the local level to the national and international level. When you're teaching students about the climate crisis, what are some of the strategies that you use to engage them on the urgency of this issue? All of my students know that maybe it's Generation Z. They like know that climate change is urgent. I've, I've never had a student who did not think that climate change was real or that it was urgent. And, and I will say students self-select into my courses. So the students who are passionate about these issues are the ones who would enroll in my, in, in my courses. Uh, I use so many different tools. So once again, not my idea, but I, I took a class in Berkeley in city planning with a professor, Tony Griffin. She's an African-American woman who does design for the just city. She had us do an Instagram assignment. So I use that with my students. But basically, it's an assignment where you have students post pictures of injustice or justice in the built environment. And I think that has been such an excellent tool because students um, are identifying injustice in the built environment. And so I have students who previously were not paying attention to their surroundings and now they are noticing like, why are the sidewalks cracked in this neighborhood and not in that neighborhood? Why are there abandoned buildings in this neighborhood, not that neighborhood? Uh, why are there corner stores selling unhealthy food in my community, but I don't see that in other communities. So I think, you know, it just gets the conversation started and they share the photos and the Instagram with their family members, some of their peers. So it allows for a more meaningful dialogue. And that's so interesting that when you talk about environmental or systemic inequalities, all you have to do is walk down a few city blocks and any student can engage on that level of witnessing what's different in this area versus that area and what they're seeing. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, like I said, this came straight out of a city planning course. Sometimes in more traditional environmental studies and science programs, we shy away from uh, social media the arts, the digital. And I think that if we want to engage 
as citizenry, you know, for the 21st century, we really have to utilize all the tools that are available and meet people where they are. And so that's what I try to do in my classroom. I also know that STEM has historically come under criticism for not always being inclusive. What are some of the challenges you've encountered in STEM academia and how do you combat those issues? So I'm getting a PhD in environmental science policy management. I'm like 1%, 1% of the United States population who has that particular degree, especially as a Black woman, woman of color. My department is majority white and male dominated. Um, So I'm often tokenized in environmental spaces. However, I was raised with the understanding that mentorship is the key to success. And so I've been a part of so many mentorship programs for students of color in STEM fields and environmental fields. So for example, as an undergraduate at Spelman College, the summer before I entered, I was part of YSTEM, which is Women in Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math. And so they had us doing research that summer, presenting at conferences, taking courses in ecology, going on hikes. That was actually my first hike, now that I think about it. And so that was such an amazing mentorship program, which I'm pretty sure received federal funding. And so after that, I was part of SOARS, which is Significant Opportunities in Atmospheric Research and Science. I was able to do computer modeling of upper tropospheric ozone at the National Center for Atmospheric Research. And that's a program for underrepresented students in atmospheric and related fields. I'm a part, I'm an environmental fellow through Dorsita Taylor Environmental Fellowship Program through the University of Michigan and the Environmental Grantmakers Association. And the list goes on. And I would say all of my success is owed to these mentorship programs and these people of color and allies who really believed in diversifying STEM and putting their money where their mouth is. When we talk about diversity in STEM or increasing representation, we're really talking about funding these mentorship programs because representation matters and experiences matter. And for me, that is why I think my role as an environmental educator is so important because people are not willing to share power with people that they don't think are competent or qualified. And so my role is to make sure there's qualified, competent, highly skilled graduates who can go on to apply for these positions, because even when you're qualified, you still have to fight to share power. That's my role, to make sh- to try to mitigate some of the that epistemic injustice and ensure that no one can say like, oh, well, there weren't qualified candidates. <laughs> There's always qualified candidates. Yeah, and you've also written about the importance of a feminist lens on the Global Green New Deal. Could you talk about that? Yeah, of course. So... Although we can debate for days about the wording of Green New Deal, is that appropriate? Like there's baggage that comes along with that language. We do need policies that make sure that there is a earth for future generations and that we are thinking about equity when we talk about renewables and living more sustainably when we talk about green infrastructure. And we also have to bring in intersectional perspectives because when we don't center frontline communities indigenous communities, when we don't center women, when we don't center human rights youth, 
we actually exacerbate the problem. Most people don't realize that climate change does not impact us all equally. Climate change actually exasperates existing gendered and racialized inequalities. And so using an intersectional perspective, we can talk about how after many disasters, there's a rise in gendered violence, domestic violence, and also sex trafficking, violence against indigenous women. We can talk about how women make up the bulk of the membership of grassroots organizations, how women are water protectors, how reproductive justice is connected to climate change, and how when we have extreme weather and disasters, there's a rise in preterm births. Women uh, who uh, deal with children with low birth weights, even like how it impacts LGBTQ communities and the and their inability to maybe access resources and hormones or how they might not have access to certain shelters or they're put in shelters that are inappropriate that exposes them to increased violence. There's so many impacts. There's so many researchers who are talking about these issues. Internationally, people have been talking about the intersection of gender and climate change for a long time. We're a little behind in the United States, but we're catching up. I would just finally add that it's important to understand that when we talk about gender and climate change, although I focus on women and women of color, gender is not synonymous with women. (laughs) Gender is everyone. Everyone, gender impacts everyone. Everyone has a gender, you know, gendered norm. So we're talking about impacts on men, on women, on um, non-binary folk, LGBTQ communities, and there's a need for greater research. But once again, we're, we're having to take baby steps so that people first understand that there is a climate crisis, that it doesn't impact everyone equally, and that the people who contribute the least to greenhouse gas emissions are usually the ones most impacted by uh, disaster. What are some of the best ways to combat misinformation about climate change? I think there's a lot of approaches. So from a climate communications perspective, for change, you need dialogue. Oftentimes, scientists or even well-meaning advocates and activists, we come in saying, I'm right, you're wrong, listen to me. And the conversation is very unidirectional. But we need multidirectional dialogue, which means that you really do have to like share, listen. I would also say psychology is really important. To admit that climate change exists means that there's limits to growth. That challenges a lot of traditional economic theories that people hold. It challenges this idea that America is a place where everyone has opportunity and you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And it challenges people who are taught to think in linear ways and to think in hierarchies. So really to combat this misinformation, it really begins with stories having an open heart dialogue, and also having some empathy, I would say, because to attack people's deeply held beliefs, it's almost religious beliefs at this point. It's very disconcerting and people don't do well with uncertainty. You see the panic that's going on with the um, crisis around COVID-19. We don't teach people how to manage uncertainty and change. I think a lot of Frontline communities, communities of color are used to dealing with uncertainty because we're always existing in a state of crisis. But for other folk, it challenges everything. So I think we have to like figure out ways to allow people to grieve, deal with that anxiety so that they can, you know, admit that there is a problem and then 
be encouraged to participate in actions to deal with the problem. I know for a while, there's some folk, you just can't change their mind. You have to agree to disagree. But I think that the youth know what's going on. They're the future. They're the ones inheriting these problems. So I feel like we really just need to work with people who are willing to listen and, you know, plant seeds because you might plant a seed in a denier today. It might not sprout for like 10 or 20 years, but I promise you, once we keep having disasters like the fires, the floods, the droughts, the food shortages, there's people who are publicly deniers, but in the privacy of their homes, they understand what's going on because they're being impacted. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up the younger generation because I was going to ask you, how have you reacted to the current wave of young climate justice activists? Honestly, I'm inspired when I think about all of the youth around the country, um, especially from indigenous and brown communities, black and brown communities, they are taking risks. They are unafraid. They're unapologetic. And when we talk, for my research, when we talk about women, women of color, women of color are often environmental educators or folk who have children, their mothers, and they're constantly engaging youth, or they're inspired by their love of their children or their grandchildren or future children. Like, all of the women that I've interviewed talk about how even if they're like, let's say they're fighting a pipeline, they're doing it for the current and future generations. They're doing it for the youth that haven't been born yet, the babies that haven't been born yet. And so youth, future generations are so important when we talk about justice. You know, we talk about intergenerational and intragenerational justice. What would our world look like if every decision we made was based upon the precautionary principle, but also an understanding of how it would impact seven generations. You know, indigenous folk talk about that. So, In thinking about all the ways that climate anxiety is manifesting both for folks who are maybe in denial and those who are in frontline communities, what are some examples of climate resilience that you've seen? So for me, when I think of resilience, I think of people who dare to dream, to smile, to laugh, to dance, to build, despite like hundreds of years of violence. All of the frontline communities, the communities that have just struggled so much, where that trauma is like almost like embedded in our DNA, how like figured out ways to make lemonade, you know, take lemons and make lemonade, you know, to to invoke all my grandmas and Beyonce. I just, I mean, that, that is for me, the audacity to, to get up every morning for me is resilience. I should also say that resilience is a controversial word because people are tired of having to be resilient. (laughs) Like why, like why, why, why do we keep having to fight? Why? Like it's tiring. And I guess in a more climate, for a more climate focused conversation, I think that the women who are engaged in green infrastructure inspire me. They're saying, hey, we're tired of the street flooding, so we're going to have rain gardens and rain barrels. That inspires me. I think about the folk who are engaging in sustainable, organic, regenerative farming who are bringing back heirloom varieties, who are figuring out ways to grow um, using aquaponics and agroecology. I think about also the folk who are living in ceremony, who are practicing gratitude 
figuring out ways to, um, I guess in the words of Adrian Marie Brown, promote pleasure activism, to find joy within toxic landscapes and despite ongoing chronic violence. We all have a role to play. And I definitely say I want to increase the representation of underrepresented folk in climate policy spaces because these spaces are still mostly white and male. And that's not appropriate. And also, um, there's so much creative potential in frontline communities, indigenous communities, women of color, um, women in general. So I really want to increase our representation in these decision-making spaces. And I want to share these stories. Like, that's my role as a griot. That's my role as a feminist anthropologist, as a Black geographer, to share these stories, hope that they inspire uh, a call to action. As an Afrofuturist, I really hope that our futures are based in healing. The idea of resilience is to return to the past and the status quo. And I don't want to return to the status quo. I want something better. I want something great. You can hear more of Sarah Holtz's interview with environmental sociologist Francis Roberts Gregory at our website. Visit peacetalksradio.com and look for our April 2020 episode. In a moment, Sarah Holtz's interview with journalist Peter Fimwright as our program on climate anxiety continues after this short break on Peace Talks Radio. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Find all of our programs online at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls today with Sarah Holtz. Today with a program that explores how we can process our anxiety around climate change. And next, Sarah talks with the journalist Peter Femright. Peter Fimwright's job changed dramatically in 2017. That was the year of the Wine Country fires in Northern California, the second most devastating blaze in the state's history. He covers science and the environment for the San Francisco Chronicle. Peter says that unprecedented wildfires are just one symptom of climate change in places like California and Australia. The main one would be droughts and atmospheric rivers. Uh, which are bands of moisture that come in and uh, drop exorbitant amounts of rain and snow in the, in the, in the mountains. Uh, these things happen periodically. Five years, there's a drought, and then there's just an, an amazing amount of rain. It's just a, a change in patterns is kind of what's been happening. When I initially reached out to you, you had just come off of doing a story about the Australian bushfires. Can you talk about what that reporting process was like? 
Well, yeah. I mean, Aust- Australia has a similar climate. I mean, it's much, much bigger than California, but it has a similar climate, a warmer, actually a drier and warmer climate in, in many places. Their fires this year have been just absolutely catastrophic, similar to what California went through over the last few years. Uh, just uh, really out of control fires, uh, deadly and large uh, fires. So I, I covered those fires in Australia, wrote about how they are similar to California's and talked to climate scientists about sort of the, the similarities. And what were some of your findings from those interviews? Uh, well, that, that they're quite similar. <laughs> so, I mean, and, and that's, uh, that's something that climate scientists think is a result of climate change, more fires, larger fires, more you know, extreme fire behavior, like pyrocumulus clouds of fire that go 30,000 feet in the air and fire tornadoes. These things were only rarely seen in the past, but in the past five years or so, there have been numerous fires where those characteristics have shown up in, in fires here, and they're happening in Australia also. I also know that you were in the Forest Service for about five years. What was that like? It was interesting. I mean, for a, a, I was in my 20s. It was, it was kind of fun for me, a little danger, a little, you know, traveling. We, uh, we fought at that time one of the largest fires at the Morgan Creek Fire. I don't know where it stands now, but it was, it's in Monta- Montana, Idaho. It was at that time, I think, the largest fire in U.S. history. Did your time in the Forest Service play a role in you becoming an environmental reporter? It might have had something to do with it. I, I really enjoyed being out in the wilderness, um, so maybe that was a spark. I love the outdoors, and so maybe I, I think that I just fell into it um, and started writing. I wasn't didn't start out here as an environmental writer, but I just started coming across stories that I thought were interesting and pitching them and writing them. And then they asked me after a while, after numerous stories, well, well, why don't you become an environmental writer? Because somebody had just left. So that's what I did. When you were reporting during the Northern California fires, did you see minds being changed based on circumstance? Well, I think during a fire, most people are mostly worrying about the situation at hand, their homes, their neighbors, their animals. You know, I think after when people contemplate what's happening is usually uh, long after the fire, you know, wow, we went through this. Uh, What can we do to change or to be more prepared next time? And what's causing this? Because this, I mean, I think people were amazed at uh, the fire behavior during the wine country fires. I mean, I remember that night when they first began, I came out of a movie with my daughter and it was really warm, unusually warm and extremely windy. I mean, it was just, I'd never really felt that before, how windy it was. And then I started smelling smoke and I knew something was big was going on. And right then I got a call from my editor and I, I got in my car and went out to the fires. Well, as I was driving out there, the flames were, lit, were shooting up on both sides 
of the car and I actually <laughs> drove through flames at one point, uh, licking up against the car and ashes flowing. It was, it was quite scary. And, uh, several other reporters have had that same experience. Um, and th- that night and during the campfire and a lot of these fires have been like that really strong winds. I think I left at around 11 30, 12 and ended up working all night on the fire with no sleep. So, and the connection to climate change, the, the fires have been unusual and people are starting to realize that, that something's going on. To what extent do you think grassroots activism will lead to systemic change? Systemic change will come when people uh, demand action. So, yes. I think uh, basically any action uh, it, it requires the public to be behind it. So, I mean, any systemic change requires, I think, the public to be behind it. So I think that's a really important part. The scientists are already, you know, 98% or so, 99% uh, are all uh, believe that climate change is here. It's happening. Uh, it's caused by humans. But there's a whole segment of the United States and the world who just doesn't believe it. How do you approach conversations with folks who don't believe in climate change? I'm not going to argue with their point of view. Uh, everybody has a right to their point of view, but, but they don't have a right to any kind of facts that they want. Facts are the facts. So that's what I stick with. I tell, you know, I tell them what I know or what the scientists say what the research has shown. It, but it does irritate me that uh, there are a lot of uh, completely false um, narratives going around. And so, I mean, I try to stick with the facts and, and, and tell people what, what's really happening. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. And also potentially your role as a reporter pointing to the evidence will eventually impact public opinion. Well, I mean, I think circumstance will also, you know, play into it. I think over time, people are seeing flood, more flooding, more fires. The sea levels are rising already in, in some places. Over time, uh, people are going to have to realize what's happening and uh, take action. Whether it's uh, in time or not is the question. You can hear more of Sarah's interview with journalist Peter Fimwright at our website, peacetalksradio.com. You can hear her entire interview. Just look for the April 2020 episode at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls. Next up, dealing with climate anxiety from an artist and storyteller in South Louisiana. When Peace Talks Radio continues right after this break.
It's Peace Talks Radio, the podcast and radio series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're online with all of our episodes dating back to 2002 at peacetalksradio.com, peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls, along with Sarah Holtz. And now we close our program with Monique Verdan, an artist and storyteller in South Louisiana. Her work illuminates the experience of her community, the Mississippi River Delta's indigenous Huma Nation. In 2015, Monique attended the United Nations Climate Change Conference in Paris, where she became an environmental organizer. And that's where Sarah Holtz's conversation with Monique begins. I kind of fell into the organizer world. I was invited to work as part of the media team for the Indigenous Environmental Network. You know, we're in Paris. I'm seeing Indigenous women from all over the world, the Sami in Norway to the women from the Amazon, um, and and hearing all of these like very familiar stories in this global conversation, and then returned home and found out the Gulf <laughs> was up for sale, literally. And so it was in 2016, um, there was, you know, as there is every year, um, or maybe even a couple of times a year, there are these, you know, federal auctions of the Gulf of Mexico for deep water oil and gas exploration. And so coming home and seeing that was just this kind of like, oh, okay. And with every wave of disaster, you know, be it when Katrina came ashore in 2005 or when the BP drilling disaster happened, um, you know, five years later in 2010, um, there is this new kind of like informational like uh, growth steps and us being able to like identify what the things are like with Katrina it was like oh the wetlands are disappearing and what does that mean and then with BP it was also like okay wow we've got a hazardous waste situation in an ocean basin so yeah you know just for me and my journey and being like oh what is coastal erosion and what is that tied to and also being like oh wow this is a much bigger kind of colonial lens we need to go back to like the history of extraction and exploitation and um, control of the land for commerce um, and for commodities to be traded and that comes with you know land and lives and labor being like in a lot of circumstances, especially here in the Delta, you know, um, taken advantage of. And then these times of like with each wave of kind of new challenge and, and recognizing that it's like the assaults are all kind of tied to the same legacies. And how do we respond in ways that can can be really healing and recognizing that like waves of funding come, there's a campaign, oh, it's uh, Katrina. Oh, it's, you know, BP. Oh, it's something else. And and so, you know, there's like this interest. And, and I think really being here and, and from an environmental, coming from an environmental lens, you know, it's like we have not historically had a lot of support here. And there's a reason for that. You know, it's because corporations and specifically the oil and gas industry has a lot of power. 
And also our job market is kind of limited. You know, if you're not working in service industry, you're working for oil and gas because we've gone from a sugarcane plantation society to, you know, a modern kind of corporate colonial system. And we're tied to that. You know, whether you work inside the plant or you're working at the restaurant down the street. It definitely resonates what you're saying about like, you know, when things happen like Katrina or the BP disaster, like there's this sort of reactivity and there's renewed interest from folks outside of the area. But then there's all of those times in between these terrible events. And it's like, what do you do in in those intermediate spaces to to catalyze people? Yeah. And that's really, you know, what what is a core part of the collaborative support system is that, you know, you are an individual, your community has unique needs, there are similarities. How do we learn from each other? How do we support each other? But also, how do we allow each other to maintain our individual paths and not have to like, create another nonprofit to, you know, justify who you are and what you're doing. It's like, no, just do the work that you're doing. Like the reason why organizing has, you know, is so tough. It's like, you know, people at the end of the day, life is comes with like a cost and not only financially for folks to like, it's your heart, you know, to kind of look at the data of, let's just say, Cancer Alley, you know, from Baton Rouge to New Orleans and to know there's 200 plus facilities and growing and this legacy of um, injustice. And now you have poor people and brown people and black people who are in these fence line communities that are being poisoned And that's become really, like, normalized. And I think that it's a slow assault that has happened along the coast, you know, this kind of death by a thousand oil and gas canals or pipelines. So, you know, since the 1930s, the numbers like over 10,000 miles of canals were cut. And now we're dealing with the backlash of that um, and these kind of saltwater daggers that are killing the land, that are contributing to erosion, that are expediting subsidence as sea levels are rising at this record kind of unprecedented rate. I guess I wanted to back up a little bit um, because I first found out about your work through your film, My Louisiana Love. Mm -hmm. And um, I wonder if you could give listeners a little bit of background on that project. Sure. My Louisiana Love is a, about an hour-long documentary that I kind of think of it as putting a parenthesis around the last hundred years in South Louisiana, but from an indigenous perspective, from a, per, a hyper, hyper-personal perspective, which was not the original intention when I started collecting footage in the late 90s. So... You know, I think for me and making my Louisiana love, it has also been me trying to understand what's happening here. And through this kind of personal lens of just documenting my life and my family, there ends up being this multi-generational, yeah, stories of my grandmother and her 
being raised in, you know, what is now disappearing or disappeared land in some cases, um, but was a place as a child when she, you know, there were prairies, um, there were pecan groves, um, there was a healthy ridge. And to recognize that in one's lifetime, how quickly things have changed here and how that loss of land and connection to the water yeah that the side effects are us as a a people being disconnected from our life ways and literally our ability to feed ourselves yeah no and you know i'm super curious about the land memory bank and seed exchange how did that get started and what are you hoping to accomplish The Land Memory Bank and Seed Exchange um, came out of a project called Cry You One. Cry You One being a saying that uh, Cajun fiddlers would say, instead of let me play you a song, they would say, let me cry you one. In 2013, this kind of part performance, part procession, part eco experience um, happened in my community of St. Bernard Parish. And um, I was invited to come on as a design, like part of the design team at first. And then they started making me like read some of the poetry. And then I was suddenly, you know, they made me like kind of the protagonist, this like weird role. I don't know. Uh, it was an interesting project. And I have, I had never worked in performance art before. So really interesting project. And to try to tell the story of South Louisiana in a way of like, if you got to leave, what are you going to bring with you? Because we have no way to really mourn what's being lost here. And so I have this 16-foot geodesic dome. So we set this dome on the land that we were working, and then we covered half of it with palmettos. So it looked like a traditional Homa structure when you first approached it. Um, But then the backside was covered um, with another kind of amber material. And then I had woven some of my photographs, which I output on transparencies into that skin. Um, And it created this weird, beautiful stained glass effect almost where the light would shine in if you were inside of the structure. And it was a bit of a holding space for folks because we had to transport them across this little canal. And that experience for me was so powerful and so intimate and also was like, we need more spaces where we can come together and be like, okay, this is where we are. This is what we're losing. What do we think is needs to be remembered and collected and shared and distributed? And how do we do this from plant material to memories and photographs? In 2015, I want to say it was, uh, the Land Memory Bank and Seed Exchange kind of was birthed, um, but definitely seeded from this experience with Cry You One and just carving out and activating a space. We have a little area where we share seeds, um, pollinator seeds, mostly because that's the easiest thing, but also some food seeds and um, have been collecting and trying to propagate traditional medicines, medicine plants. Um, You know, as our land is disappearing, these traditional plants are not 
able to be found as often and in historical places where they have been found. So we're trying to move them to higher ground and also maintain that knowledge of how to to work with those plants. But what ends up being really magical and something that is not easy to document is that when we activate the space um, and, you know, we've done different kinds of installations with sharing photographs and maps and of the community and people come into these spaces that we create and their memory, it's, you know, vocalized and then another person's you know history and reference points and connect and it's like getting people to get in the same space with each other and then to to be able to reflect and I think that there are community meetings here all the time and they're not productive Um, I think when you give somebody three minutes to basically try to (laughs) defend their way of life and their home um and then you're like okay your uh, minutes up like get out of here it's more frustrating than it is productive and in so many cases it feels like the officials who are hosting those meetings are just going through the motions the decisions have already been made and there's really no steering that And whether that means like a pipeline project or a river diversion or whatever other public good. You know, you mentioned that one of the proposed solutions from the state is this engineering intervention that sort of supposes that, okay, maybe it's too late. Do you work within that framework or are there ways to solve the problem? Or at this point, since a lot of your work is so personal and focused on place and family and and home? Is it about preservation or all of the above, I guess? Yeah. Recently, my new mantra is remain and reclaim. I think that lift or leave doesn't feel right. Retreat and return. That's a big maybe. Yeah. But I also wonder often if I'm kidding myself, you know, like, did I drink the Kool-Aid too and think that like, I can build a house on a concrete slab on top of land that is essentially like putting land and there be a big levee wall around me that, you know, the federal government spent like a billion dollars to build and is sinking and, you know, but I can get flood insurance, (laughs) like, you know, okay, I'll get a mortgage on that, like first time homeowner, what, you know, there's this, there are times where I'm talking like out of both sides of my mouth saying, yeah, you know, home is home. There's no place like home. Plant your fruit trees and like keep your seeds growing and like, and then there's another part of me that's like, you know what? I live right down the street from two major oil refineries. And I think that that, you know, is this environment as in love with it and as like familiar and family, you know, I feel like I feel like the Delta is my home. Like I feel most myself here. I understand this place. If the lights go out, like I'm going to be able to survive. Uh, I guess you do what you got to do. But I've been thinking a lot about my own like questions around migration because I think 
where places are becoming more and more vulnerable. I've seen just in my lifetime, whether it be, you know, along Northwest Florida, the barrier islands there, um, or here in the urban city or being out at the ends of the bayous, these places that are becoming more vulnerable become more desirable. And those who have always been there are getting priced out of there. And I also, yeah, I've packed my car too many times um, to evacuate, to be naive and think that I won't have to do that again. And I also know I don't really ha- know where to run to. So, yeah, I'm a calm. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, it makes sense, though, that what you said, uh, you know, kind of talking out of both sides of your mouth because a situation as complex and, you know, rife with systemic inequality, it's going to force people to have to operate in like both mindsets at all times. I mean, I think when I really think about what I need most, it is my community. I think that, you know, when everyone was scattered to the wind after Katrina and then that ability to come home, but also that people have to leave home all the time, all over the world for many different reasons. And that as time goes on, that I think the great migration from the coast (laughs) has already begun and it will continue. But also at the same time, I think that we have a right to maintain a relationship with the land and the water because it is family as well. It defines who we are, how we eat and survive. Like, I think about that a lot. It's like, oh, I know this place because, like, my ancestors have been, like, eating of it for so long, you know. Of course, now I'm, like, buying my food at the grocery store most of the time, too. So it's not really coming from uh, the earth as it did for my grandmother's generation. But, yeah, that relationship is important. You know, I feel like Chicken Little a lot, like... The land is sinking. The oil is coming. The, you know, whatever. (laughs) Like, uh, yeah, we might be on the verge of the apocalypse or it just happened. I'm not sure. (laughs) I feel that way sometimes. And I think that, you know, if you allow the nature to do what it knows to do, it has the ability to heal itself with a little bit of support and a little bit of like oomph behind it, you know, if you help to to shepherd that just a tiny bit, it's really inspiring to know that we should be more in collaboration with nature than this kind of domination that we've had over the land and the water here. And so I'm so grateful to put my hands in the dirt um, and I try to do it even sometimes to just like pull out some weeds just to like, cause it just makes me feel better. Um, and even if I plant things just to like watch them die, (laughs) um, there's something about knowing that if you water it, it grows. (laughs) I live in the heart of cancer alley, just North of the dead zone and a place that provides the statistic used to be a third of the nation's oil and gas was being provided through South Louisiana. Now with like the fracking boom, we're retrofitting pipelines to export fossil fuels to international markets. 
and we have made the ultimate sacrifice. And I think it's really important for us to all remember that we're connected to this, that the Delta doesn't just matter for me. It matters for like planetary well-being. Um, this is a PowerPoint where life comes to be born, where birds stop on great migrations and, you know, where cypress forest used to be thousand year old trees all around. And if we allow the nature to do what it does, it can survive this, but we're going to have to let go of believing that we can control it. You can hear more of Sarah Holtz's interview with Monique Verdan, the artist and storyteller from South Louisiana. Visit our website, peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear the entire interview that Sarah did with Monique by clicking on Monique's photo on the episode webpage, April 2020. That's at peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear all of the programs in our series dating back to 2002. It's like a peace studies curriculum there, and I invite you to click through the program titles and find ones that really intrigue you. It's a wide variety, believe me. You'll find the audio available for download there from each episode. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter, see pictures of guests, read and share partial transcripts, and follow links to other resources on each episode's topic. That's all at peacetalksradio.com. And there's a donate button there, too, if you want to add your support to our nonprofit efforts to keep this program on the air and available to you and to all into the future. Most of our support comes from folks like you donating what they can. And from businesses like a Spinal Health and Movement Center in Albuquerque's Knob Hill neighborhood, managed by chiropractor Ruben Ramirez. We get some help from the Albuquerque Community Foundation's Tides Fund. And we're partners with KUNM at the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque. Nola Daves Moses is our executive director. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme music. And before we go, we'd like to tell you that we lost a true friend recently when Rachel Moray passed away. Rachel served on our board of directors for six years and guided us well through the early part of our nonprofit organization's journey. She offered good advice and support, tapping into her decades of experience in public radio. And personally, you'd never meet a more soothing soul than Rachel Moray. She was smart and calm and wise and kind, and she was so brave in dealing with her brain tumor ordeal for the past year, letting her friends in on the process via social media. Her posts were informative and good-humored, just as Rachel always was. Our deepest appreciation and love go out to her family. I'm Paul Ingalls with thanks to Sarah Holtz for today's program. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio. Peace Talks Radio.